Good afternoon, my name is Mike. I'm someone who serves uh, this church alongside John T. It's great to be with you this afternoon. It's great uh, that you could join us today. If you're new here, particularly warm welcome to you. It's great to have you with us. Uh, we at this church, we love to look at God's word because we believe God's word is living and active. Um, and it, it cuts to the very heart, and that's why we love to look at God's word together. So we're going to do that now, this afternoon. If you could grab a Bible, whether it's on your phone or you've got it in your hand physically, John chapter 13 is where we're at. So John chapter 13. We looked at verse 1 last week, but I'm going to read it again from verse 1 through to verse 17. Great. So let me read. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. How can you tell what somebody really lives for? How can you tell what the essence of a person's life is? I think there are various ways that we can look at that. Question, but I think one of the best ways to see, to see what they say towards the end of their life, the end of their time on this earth, I think that's when you really find out their desires, their regrets, their beliefs, what they want from those around them and their followers. As somebody is getting close to leaving, the things that really matter to them get drawn out. They start telling their followers about their legacy. This is my hope, this is my wish, this is my desire that you might carry this on. You see that a lot in leaders, don't you? Someone who's founded a company, it's that big speech. They've been there for 40 years seeing this thing grow. And they're about to leave and retire. And they leave their legacy. This is what I want. 
Steve Jobs, founder of Apple, died in 2011 as he battled with pancreatic cancer. Now, I looked around, there's all sorts of disputes about his final words and fake news and all that, so I'm not going to go there. But something that was recorded was his commencement speech at Stanford University in 2005. That's a year after he'd been diagnosed with cancer. And it's a fascinating speech, if you haven't heard it before. What I found really fascinating was some of those one-liners he drops in there. It, it gives you a glimpse of the kernel of belief he had of his own life, of what he desired from those students that day, what he desired from his company that day. Here are a few of them. Don't waste your life living someone else's. Stay hungry, stay foolish. Never settle. That speech on YouTube alone, that video, video has been viewed some 38 million times. And Apple, still hungry. They never settle. You see that in his legacy and the way his followers play that out and live that out. Now, this sermon isn't about Apple. Companies like that rise and fall, they come and go. And just to say, Samsung is the number one smartphone producer in the world. <laughs> and if you didn't know, I am Korean, by the way. <laughs> but this is the point. As we come into John's Gospel, as we look to John chapter 13 to 17, we're at a turning point. We saw that last week. We're at a pivot point. Jesus is now getting ready to return to his Father. He's preparing his disciples for his departure from this world. And what is Jesus going to leave behind? What is his legacy, if you like, for his disciples? What's going to be his final speech? Now, there's a whole load of things you might expect Jesus to say. He could, he could go to Sermon of the Mount 2.0 for his disciples. Or he could have given them a list of things. This is what I want to do, you to do as disciples. Three years of ministry. This is my experience. These are the things I've seen. But did you notice in this passage, in the first five verses, in the heart of this passage... No words are spoken. The first thing that John wants us to see is what Jesus does with his hands and feet. Jesus doesn't tell us, tell his disciples what he wants them to do. He shows us. So picture the scene. For about the three years, the disciples have been following Jesus around. He's done loads of miracles. He's, he's told immense stories, taught them great things. Specifically in the book of John, we've seen seven particular signs that John points out, highlighting the glory of God that comes in Jesus. So the disciples now, they're convinced, this is the, late, the, the leader that we've been waiting for, the Messiah. And here they are, sitting at this dinner. It feels like perhaps their last dinner. I mean, we, we call it the Last Supper, but they're beginning to sense there's something around the corner. Because Jesus has been talking about, my time is almost here, my hour, my hour has not come, my hour has not come. That's what he's been saying until, until chapter 12, verse 23. Jesus has said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And so the disciples are starting to sense it. Is this now the moment where Jesus is going to be glorified, where he goes and takes back the throne from Rome, and he brings back the heyday, the glory days of David and Solomon? It's like you're coming to the, the climax point of a movie. You're half expecting this rousing speech. You know, have you seen Braveheart? I realize it's actually quite an old movie now. But uh, it's like that scene, you know, when William... If you don't know Braveheart, basically it's Scotland versus England. England are trying to take over and Scotland are like, get out. And so there's this guy called William Wallace who comes to lead. And here he is, he's on a horse with blue and white paint. He's sitting in there. And it's this rousing, stirring speech. He's... I'm not going to do a Scottish accent. He, they may take our lives, but they will never take our... Freedom! Yeah, there we go. Freedom! And you're, you're sitting there. I was watching this on VHS. If you, know what, if you don't know what VHS is, 
go, go to the science museum. I think it's in there. But I was watching this on tape, and, and you're like, come on. I'm not even Scottish. You're like, come on, you Scots. Yeah, you drive out those English led by this Mel Gibson, American guy, Mel Gibson. <laughs> it's weird. Anyway, it's that sort of tension, that sort of moment. Because just picture it. In those days, they're having, they're having dinner. They don't sit at tables. They lie down. They're lying down and having dinner, and then Jesus suddenly gets up. And all eyes fall on him, thinking, what's he going to do? Is this the moment? And then he takes off his outer garment and rolls up his sleeves, and everyone's like, oh, here we go, here we go. What's he going to say? And then he wraps a towel around himself. And then he goes over and he fills this basin with water. The disciples are starting to think, what's going on, what's going on? And they think, oh, John chapter 2, the wedding of Cana, he turned water into wine. Maybe this is going to be a great last dinner, they're thinking. But then what does Jesus do? He gets down on his knees and he starts washing the feet of the disciples. And silence fills the room. What is Jesus leaving them with? What does he want them to remember? Not a word is spoken during that entire scene. Jesus doesn't leave them with some tips or a checklist of how to be a good disciple. No, he shows them with his own hands and feet. Here is their leader, their master, their king, who kneels down to wash the feet of his own disciples. Now, this isn't just washing feet in a hygienic sort of sense. John picks up on the details that are significant. See, taking off your outer garments and wrapping a towel around you, that is only something a servant of the house would ever do. But then to wash the feet of people in the house, not even the disciples would do that for one another. That's not what even friends do for each other. And that, actual, actually, that job was not even reserved for the Jewish servants. That was for the Gentile servants, the lowest of the low. And there is Jesus, their leader, their master, their teacher, their king, doing what the lowest of the low would do. It is an astounding, beautiful, and shocking picture of humble service from a master to his followers. And culturally, it's, when we look at that, it seems a bit weird. Just imagine if you, went to, if you go to work tomorrow and your boss comes over to you and says, hey, I, I want to wash your feet. It would sound a bit weird, wouldn't it? But you sort of, if you look beyond that, you start to get that sense of a humble posture. So I actually asked some of my friends who, who wouldn't say they're Christians, I, I said, do, do you guys know this story? And actually, because I think it's quite a famous story, and they said, yeah, we, we sort of remember it. And they got a lot of their details mixed up. But this is what they said at the end. They said, it's a moral teaching about humility, isn't it? It's about kind of serving. That's what they said. But this is what really surprised me. Almost all of them said to me, I think we need more of this humility in society today. See, I think our culture really craves this humility where those who have much would serve those who have little. I think that's even more prevalent these days as we come out of COVID land, as we long and crave for, for good community. Then we look at leadership, both Christian and non, in the last few years, and we think, oh, so many times I've heard, if only they had a bit more humility. It's as though humility is that real key trait, really desirable. And if you read around it, there's lots of stuff that says, you know, humility helps nurture trust, it makes you likable, it generates good teamwork and community and social bond. But I want, to, I want to push us further in this passage. This passage is not just some moralistic teaching. We're not supposed to look at this scene and think, oh, that's really nice. 
What Jesus does is not meant to merely be an example of humility. Yes, it is. But it's not merely just to teach us, oh, this is what we should do to one another, to help bond our communities. Jesus isn't doing this to his disciples to help them you know, like him and trust him and respect him more. That is not what Jesus is doing. John wants us to pick up on this. And that's why verse 3 is key. Look at verse 3. He says, look at who Jesus is. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Jesus knew that the Father, Jesus knows his position. He is God the Son in relation to God the Father. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's the God who's come down as man. He always has been. He was there at creation as the Word of God, John 1. He is God. John 10, 31, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. He knows his position. But he knows his power too. God the Father has given him all power. He has the power to open the eyes of the blind, to calm the stormy waters, to bring back Lazarus from the dead. He has the power even to stop Judas if he wanted to. In verse 2, he was already there, present, ready to betray him. And Jesus knows his purpose. He had come from God and was returning to God. We touched on this last week. Jesus' ultimate purpose was to glorify his Father and for the Father to glorify the Son. Everything in the last 12 chapters of John has been building up to that and pointing us to that. Jesus said in John 5, I do not receive glory from people. John 8, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. And most recently, John 12, Father, glorify your name. John is showing us, look, remember who Jesus is. Jesus is God the Son with all power who comes to glorify his Father. And then he says, did you see that little word at the start of verse 4? So, because that's who Jesus is, so, he gets up to wash the disciples' feet. Despite his position here as, as God the Son, he comes down to wrap a towel around himself, to wash the feet of humans, of creatures he created. Despite all of his power, he stoops down to wash the feet of powerless, helpless sheep, lost without a shepherd. And his purpose is clear. The way of glory for the Father is for Jesus to come to kneel down and wash the feet of his followers, to come and serve and not to be served. Why is he doing this? What is so important about this picture? Because this is actually a picture of Jesus' entire ministry. Jesus is showing us in one picture the heart of his ministry. So there's actually a deeper meaning in this scene. When Jesus steps up from his place at the table to stoop down, it's like him leaving his place at the high table before God the Father to stoop down, to come down in the form of a man. As he takes off his outer garments, it's like him taking off his kingly robes as the king of the universe. He wraps himself in a towel to take on the form of a servant. And then with his own hands, he washes the dirt from the people's feet, physically taking action to clean them. Do you kind of see where this is going? Do you see what this act of Jesus for the disciples points forward to? Because it's interesting, the next time John mentions garments is at the cross, when Jesus' purple robes are taken off from him for spoils, and he's left to hang naked. Where he's humbled to death on a cross, 
the lowest of the low, on full display, in the room there, in the upper room, all eyes were on Jesus as he did this. At the cross, all eyes were on him as he hung naked and ashamed. And there, with his nail-pierced hands, he washes the dirt of sin from those who are his own. Why does he go to do this to that degree? Why does he come to serve, to kneel down and wash the feet of his disciples? John 13:1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I think this story is unpacking what John is saying there. John's showing us the heart of Jesus' ministry, how he loved his very own to the end. By showing us how he comes to kneel in humility to serve his people. That is why he comes to stoop down and serve as a man on this earth, because he loves his people. And what is the extent of this love? He loves them to the end. Not only in terms of time going into eternity, but in terms of his actions to the point of laying his life down for his people. So you see, this scene here of him washing the disciples' feet is not just a scene showing us how humble Jesus is. This shows us his love-driven humility for his people, even to the point of death on a cross. Now what I found really interesting is when I started to read a little bit around humility, there's a lot of advice out there about what humility is and how to be humble. Now I'm not claiming I've read everything, but just around the reading I did, books and blogs and so on, I didn't find a single one that connected humility with love. But here is Jesus' love for his disciples, for you. This act of humility is because he loves you to the point of dying for you. Do you realize that Jesus, the Son of God, the King of the universe, stoops down in humility to come and wash your feet? because he loves you. And as he returns to his father, he says, Father, look, I bring you glory by washing these people's feet. Jesus doesn't want anything from you. He just wants to show you I love you. And he does this by saying, you know what? I know your dirt. I know your sin. You think because it's on your feet, you don't really notice it. You know, your feet are a little bit like that. At the end of the day, you're like, oh, there they are. And you kind, of grow, you kind of grow used to it. You're just walking around and doing whatever you need to do. And you kind of forget, oh, sometimes I need to wash my feet. But Jesus says, you know what, I know it. And that's what sin's like. We sometimes forget it's there. But Jesus says, look, your sin makes you unwelcome in my Father's house. That is the picture here. To, to enter someone's home, you had to have your feet washed. You weren't welcome otherwise. And that is what Jesus is saying. You know what? To enter into my Father's house, I'm going to come. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to wash your feet. I'm going to clean you once and for all by giving my life for you, by shedding my blood for you so that you might be clean, so that you would be welcome in my Father's house. That is how much I love you. You might be new to Christian things this afternoon. You may have never heard this before, or you may be really familiar with stuff. And you might just have lost a glimpse of that glory of Jesus. Will you look to Jesus and say, yes, Jesus, thank you so much that you have come to wash my feet. Thank you so much for serving me, for dying for me, despite how dirty my feet are. That is Jesus' legacy. That is what he wants his disciples, his followers, he wants you and I to know today. 
that his entire ministry is driven by love. He wants to show you how much he loves you, and he does that through love-driven humility that says, I'm going to wash your feet. I'm going to go and die for you. I'm going to lay my life down at the cross for you. That is, a, that is the loving Savior we have in Jesus. Now that's a big bit. So how do we respond? How do we respond to that sort of legacy that Jesus leaves for us? I think there are two ways we can, we can respond. The first is this, with humble, humble defiance. And you'll see what I mean by humble defiance. Okay, so come back to the dining table again. Jesus is washing the feet, going slowly around each disciple. It's probably a mixture of embarrassment and awe. Oh my word, our teacher, our master is washing our feet. And then you see it, there's Peter. He's like, you know that really keen students who are on the edge of the seat go, oh yeah, I know the answer. It's that kind of thing. Peter's there on the edge of his seat, bursting to shout out. He's looking around going, how dare you? How dare you let Jesus do this? And he waits and he waits and then Jesus comes around. And what does Peter do in his typical brash way? Jesus, are you going to wash my feet? You pause for a second. It, it sounds really noble. It's a bit, I don't think this ever happened to you. It's like um, our boss used to come, sometimes come over and say, hey, I'm going to go out and get a coffee for the team. And there was always that one person who said, oh, no, no, but you're the boss. You, you chill, you wait. I'll, I'll go and get it for you. And I'll, I'll be honest, sometimes I looked at that person and I was like, that's great, but why are you doing that? What is, what's your motive behind that? Why are you saying that? And that's with Peter. It sort of sounds good when you hear it, but this is Peter's humility. It's all focused actually on himself. Where's your focus now? In the, in the room just a moment ago, all eyes were on Jesus. On Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Everyone was silently watching him. Now where's your gaze? It's all on Peter. He's shouting out. Peter's saying, look, Jesus is too good for me. I'm not worthy. It sounds really humble, but notice it's actually all about Peter and what he thinks of himself. It sounds like it's elevating Jesus, but it's actually all about him. And notice he never says, Jesus, why are you doing this to us? Or you shall never wash our feet. It's always me and mine. So it looks humble on the surface, but this is the danger. That sort of humble humility ends up in defiance against God because Peter right now, he's in danger of rejecting exactly what he needs. He's in danger of rejecting everything Jesus came to do for him. He's in danger of rejecting the very love of Jesus. So why does this happen? Well, firstly, because we, like Peter, can often have a one-dimensional view of what Jesus is doing. We look at Jesus and we just think, oh, that's a wise saying, that's a great example, that's how to be humble. And to be fair to Peter, Jesus does say in verse 7, you're not really going to get this until, until you see the cross. But we today have the benefit of hindsight. And that's it. We're not to look at Jesus' acts and think of it just on a human level. But we look at what it points to. How it points us forward to Jesus' love-driven humility that rescues us from the dirt of sin. That cleans us so that we might stand with him in glory. But here's the second thing. I think this is, this is the, the bigger thing. It might be that like Peter, you think you're unworthy as well. You might be sitting here thinking, Jesus is too good for me. He's the master. Why would he stoop this low for someone like me? You might be listening to me saying, Mike, if you only knew how dirty my feet really were. 
when Peter says, you shall never wash my feet because he feels unworthy, that never there has this eternal weight to it. I try to think of a way to, to paint this. I'll give this go. So often when my daughter and I, we go to the park, things sometimes get a bit out of hand. And um, Rachel, she's only two, but she'll come home with lots of muck all over, like grass stains and random spots of paint and muck on her clothes. It doesn't happen every time. I do look after her. But I come home and I tell Jemima, and I just look and I say, I'm really sorry. I just, I just don't think we'll be able to get it out. It's not worth keeping their trousers. Let's just chuck them. And I don't know how she does this, but Jemima, she always seems to get it out. I always use the same stuff too, but she just has this knack of getting this stuff out. I don't have no idea how. And so I've learned to just trust her with it. And she doesn't do it begrudgingly. She actually sort of really likes doing it. I don't know if that's because she likes cleaning or she likes, I don't know, a bit of both maybe. But that's a bit like the picture of Jesus here who unbegrudgingly, who lovingly says, no, Peter, you are worth it. Look at what Jesus does in verse 8. He doesn't say, oh, Peter, okay, you sort of get humility, so I'm going to just bypass you and go to John. No, he loves Peter to the end. This is love-driven humility that says, no, 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 Peter, I know what you need, and you need this. Jesus replies with this eternal weight in his response, When he speaks of Peter and he says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. That part, it speaks of an inheritance. That's the implication of an eternal inheritance to look forward to with Jesus. And he's saying, Jesus is saying, don't reject this because I want you there with me. So no matter who you think you are or what you think you've done, Jesus says, I love you and I'm here to wash your feet. And if you're thinking at this point, but, but Peter, he's like, he's like the big dog, the leader of the disciples. He's like the Thor of the posse. Or actually, he's more like the Incredible Hulk, you know, with his rashness. Trust me, Peter is not a model student. Just a few chapters later on, he's going to go off and cut off somebody's ear, spoiler alert, right in front of Jesus' eyes, and then go on to deny Jesus three times. And Jesus knows all this. And yet he still says, Peter, let me do this. I love you and I'm here to die for you. So no matter how you're feeling, what you think of yourself, what you think you've done, Jesus says, I love you and I've died for you. So will you come to Jesus and let him wash your feet? Will you look to the cross and see what he's done for you and say, thank you, Jesus? Here's the flip side of it. Peter's reaction. It's quite comic, isn't it? In verse 9. He panics. He's like, ooh, okay, well, just not my feet, then everything. Just wash my head, my hands, the whole lot. Just, think if, just imagine if every week you came to church and you saw me eating a yogurt. I really like yogurts. Uh, and every week you come, you see me, and I just can't quite use a spoon very well, and I always get something on my cheek. Not on the rest of my clothes, just my cheek, on my right cheek. And apart from you thinking, oh, what a muppet, um, you say, you just point out, Mike, you've got a bit of yogurt. And imagine I said to you, oh, I'm going to have to go home and have a shower now. Every week I said that. You'd be thinking, what are you doing? 
just for the record, this is an illustration. I can eat quite, yeah. Um, but it's a little bit like that here. It's when you look at your life and you think, okay, Jesus, I want to trust you, but I need, I'm so dirty. I need so much cleansing. I need it again and again and again. And your unworthiness feels so great that you almost look up and you look to Jesus and say, is the cross enough? And Jesus looks back at you and says, it's finished. That is what Jesus' answer in verse 10 says. It helps to look at it as a contrast between Peter and, and Judas in verse 11. Because what you see is all the disciples are sitting there. Judas is amongst them as well. All of them had their feet washed. This shows the extent of Jesus' love. That he would wash the feet of somebody who he knows is about to betray him. That is the extent of Jesus' love-driven humility. But here's the difference. Judas has no faith in Jesus whatsoever. But Jesus knows that Peter does. This This is, I think, what he means by those who've been bathed. They are clean. He's using this washing image to help us see that those who have faith in Jesus, who are trusting in his word, are clean. And their faith is made effective by Jesus at the cross. But Judas, no faith in Jesus whatsoever. The word of God was lifeless in him. The effects of the cross had no bearing on his soul. Even though he had his feet physically washed by Jesus, even though Jesus physically died and shed his blood, no faith in Jesus meant he remained unclean. And that is why Jesus is saying, not everybody in this room is clean. And that's the key thing. For those trusting in Jesus, faith in the power of the cross is all we need. By faith, it is effective in our salvation. That is the grace of Jesus Christ. Trusting in Jesus, in his word, and in his sacrifice guarantees our salvation, which is why we don't need a bunch of cleaning rituals to wash our head, hands, and feet every time. We don't need loads of other stuff and things to help us get acceptance into God's kingdom, to be in God's house. That is what Jesus is telling us through Peter. So if you're here this afternoon and you're looking to put your trust in Jesus, but you feel like you've just messed up so much, well, here is the grace of God. It says to you, the gospel is beautifully simple. Come and trust in the work of Jesus, in the power of the cross, which he does because he loves you. Come and say amen. Walk alongside Jesus. And you're welcome into his home. If you're already trusting in Jesus and you call yourself a Christian, but you feel like you've really messed up this week, and you think, I'm not worthy to be a child of God, then listen to Jesus' words. Because he says, if you're trusting in me, it's okay. I don't need to die for you again. It's done. It's finished. Just come back to me. In other words, repent and remember that I love you, that I willingly come to wash your feet. Can I urge you, don't turn in on yourself and have this self-focused humility where you just think, oh, I'm just so rubbish, I'm so rubbish, I'm so rubbish. I'm too far gone for Jesus. Instead, look to what Jesus' feet washing points you to. Look to the love-driven humility of Jesus that says, no, no, I love you and I'm here for you. Put your trust in me because you are not beyond my reach. I will stoop down as far as I need to. I will love you to the very end to even die on a cross for you. Will you trust Jesus in that? 
here's how we should respond. So don't respond with humble defiance. Instead, respond with humble obedience. Jesus returns to his place at the table and puts back on his clothes. It's as though Jesus is now returning to his father, putting back on his kingly robes to rule at his right hand. And there he asks us, do you understand what I've done for you? If you've grasped the love-driven humility of Jesus, where you know he has loved you to the end, where you know that he has humbled himself to love to die on a cross for you, then Jesus gives a very simple command. Verse 15. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Go and wash one another's feet with love-driven, humble obedience. In verse 13, Jesus makes clear that he is both teacher and Lord. And it's important to remember this. Though he's come to serve us, his position is still that he is God the Son. He is still our master. He is still our king who willingly let go of his power to serve us. And so as his followers, it's important to remember that he is our teacher. He still is our teacher. He's taught us. He's modeled to us what the heart of his ministry is about. And he commands us today as the Lord of the universe to go and do likewise is to remember our position before him. Verse 16, we are servants of him, sent by him, and we are no greater. We are not so great that we, don't, we do not kneel down to serve others. That is Jesus' legacy. That his followers would serve with that same love-driven humility as their master does. Simply put, it says, look, I love you because Jesus loved me first. And that's why I serve you, because Jesus served me first. So would you willingly go out and serve? Serve those here at this church. Serve your colleagues, your neighbors with this love-driven humility of Jesus. It's a love that drives people to say, look, my position is that of a follower of Jesus. He's my master and I follow his ways. It's a love that drives people to say, though I have power, I don't cling to it to rule over you. Instead, I use it out of love for you, to serve you. It's a love that says the purpose isn't to benefit me, but to bring glory to God as I serve you. And do you see such humility, love-driven humility, counters human pride, it opposes it. It counters it because the goal of it, the purpose of it, is for God's glory, not ours. And because at the heart of it is the humility that comes from Christ, from, the, from his love, an unchanging, ever-present love. That isn't dependent on anything we do or how we feel. And that is the sort of humility I think our culture craves. That is what my friends were craving. I need to go and tell them about it. And it's a wonderful way to show others the beauty of Christ, of what he's doing as he kneels to wash his disciples' feet. So as we close, have a think about it. How could you do, be doing this today? How could you be washing one another's feet? All of us will have certain gifts or skills that have been given to us by God. Some of you may be really good at listening to other people. Some of you may be good at cooking. Maybe Weber Street might be the place to go. Some of you may be good at writing. I mean, there's tons of gifts that people have that God has given us. That's to say, I don't hold these for myself, but to say, yes, I'm going to kneel down and wash someone else's feet with them. To use them to serve and love those around us. For others, it may be that we have more resources as of finances and time than others. How can you kneel and wash somebody else's feet with it? How can you humbly serve others 
for whom those things may be really scarce. I mean, it's great to see the response of the church to the council's appeal for the help for the Afghan refugees. What a brilliant, brilliant illustration of this heart at work. And how else could we be serving in, all, in these sorts of ways? But here's the key. However you want to wash one another's feet, the heart of it is the love of Christ. The stance of it is in love-driven humility and the goal of it is to point people to Jesus, our Master, our Teacher and our Lord and give Him glory. Steve Jobs' legacy was to tell his followers, don't waste your life living someone else's. Jesus says, live your life living like me because that is a life that is blessed. That's how he ends in verse 17. Blessed, securing God, filled with joy. That is what Jesus leaves his disciples with. A legacy and a promise that living like Jesus, serving like Jesus, will be a blessed and joyful life. So may we be a church that lives out Jesus' legacy, that blesses one another by serving with cross-shaped, love-driven humility. Amen.